How's that? Is that better? There we go. Sorry, that's my fault, evidently. Either that or that little boy in the front row turned my mic off. Did you, did you turn my mic off? Worship teens, kids. Um, what I want to do is start this morning a little differently. On the back of your worship guide, every week there's a place for notes. And I'd actually like you to use it. Uh, this morning for a different kind of exercise. We're going to do a pastor evaluation. Some of you are more eager for this than the normal note taking, I see. Okay. And the way that we're going to do this, this is, a, this is how you um, get to evaluate me. You get to evaluate my, uh, my teaching on a scale of one to five. Okay. Five is like Move over, John Piper. This guy's outstanding. All right? That's a five. A three is uh, passable. And a one is don't quit your day job, you lousy preacher. Okay? So that's the scale. One to five uh, based on that. But, but before you do that, uh, we need to first read the opening verses of our passage today uh, from 1 Corinthians 4. They go like this. Paul is speaking. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motive of men's hearts. And at that time, each will receive his praise from God. Then again, maybe we should just hold off on that whole one to five thing, okay, just for a minute, while we try to figure out what Paul means. Are we not supposed to do evaluations? Is that a bad thing? Is that judging? Um, If we do evaluations, should I care? Should it matter to me how my evaluations go? Is that we we do evaluations from time to time in our church? Um, What is Paul thinking about when he writes this? Because that's going to help us understand what it means means for us. In, in, In the church, he's writing the church in Corinth a church that he founded and pastored for a, a period of a couple years or so. Um, some in the church there were none too happy with their apostle. Okay. He just didn't measure up to the standards of the day. He was none too impressive, really. And Paul himself admitted to this. In his kind of self-evaluation, he says, remember back in chapter 2, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. So some were judging Paul and his teaching, and he was coming up short in their estimation. Not very engaging. 
Basically, they're saying, don't quit your day job, Paul. And so in this chapter, Paul is addressing his critics, his judges, and he's doing it head-on in the verses that we just read. Start in verse 1 with me of chapter 4. So then, Paul says, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. That does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. And so Paul, as he addresses those who are his critics, who are judging him, um, he starts with a really pretty humble posture. He says, I'm a servant. I'm just a, a steward, some of your Bibles will say. But it's important to notice who whose servant he is and whose steward he is. He is a servant of Christ. He is a steward of the secret things, the mysteries of God. So Paul, in his mind, his direct report is not to the church at Corinth. Um, It's to God. As someone charged with the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his direct line of report is to God alone, not not really to any other man. And as a result of this, it's real interesting, Paul is free of something that tends to ensnare us all. He's free of the fear of man. Paul doesn't care what, what their evaluation of him is. He's only concerned about one evaluation. He's only concerned about one of those worship guides that would come back with a one to five on it. There's only one that matters to him, ultimately. And that is that of God alone. There's a verse in Proverbs that talks about this matter. Proverbs 29, 25. Fear of man will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. See, to look to God alone, to trust in God alone, is to be safe from the snare of the fear of man. To trust in Him supremely, to look to Him alone for approval is to be free from this aggravating fear, the snare of the fear of man, of caring too much about what people think about you. And Paul's free from this. Um, John Ortberg tells a story about how how to think about this that's helpful. He says, many years ago I was walking in Newport Beach, beach in Southern California with two friends. Two of us were on staff together at a church, and one was an elder at the same church, and we walked past a bar where a fight had been going on inside, and the fight had spilled out into the street. He said, just like in an old western. Several guys were beating up on another guy, and he was bleeding from the forehead. And we knew we had to do something, so we went over to break up the fight. He says, I don't think we're very intimidating. All we did was walk over and say, hey, you guys, cut that out. 
said it didn't do much good. And so then all of a sudden, he says, they looked at us with fear in their eyes. The guys who had been beating up the one guy stopped and started to slink away. He says, I didn't know why until we turned around and looked behind us. And out of the bar had come the biggest man I think I've ever seen. He was something like six feet, seven inches, maybe 300 pounds, maybe 2% body fat, just huge. We called him Bubba, not to his face, but afterwards when we talked about him. He says, Bubba didn't say a word. He just stood there and flexed. You could tell he was hoping they would try and have a go at him. All of a sudden, my attitude was transformed, and I said to those guys, you better not let me catch you coming around here again. I was a different person because I had a great big bubba, he says. I was ready to confront with resolve and firmness. I was released from anxiety and fear. I was filled with boldness and confidence. I was ready to help somebody that needed helping. I was ready to serve where serving was required. Why? Because I had a great big bubba. I was convinced that I was not alone. I was safe. He says, if I were convinced that Bubba were with me 24 hours a day, I would have a fundamentally different approach to my life. If I knew Bubba was behind me all day long, you wouldn't want to mess with me. But he's not. He says, I can't count on Bubba. Again and again, he says, the writers of Scripture pose this question for us. How big is your God? Again and again, we are reminded that one who is greater than Bubba has come, and you don't have to wonder whether or not he'll show up. He's always there. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to live your life in hiding. You have a great, big God. And so this Godward orientation in service and in trust frees us from the fear of man. We are engaged with, serving, and protected by one so much greater. This Godward orientation of pleasing and trusting him frees us from this snare of, the, of fearing people. And for Paul, the evaluating criterion then is not what people think or whether they think he is eloquent or charismatic or charming, it is a singular criterion by which he's to be evaluated. It is Godward. It is faithfulness to the mystery that has been entrusted to him by God. And that mystery centrally is what we call the gospel. Paul says it's, it's the truth of a crucified Christ. It's that good news of Christ crucified. And in verse 5 of our passage, then he says, Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light, and these, these expressions are very provocative, what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. So should we dump all evaluations of our pastoral staff? And just wait and let God sort it out. I'm not sure that's the best direct application. Um, 
but a good one would be that when we evaluate them, the overarching concern in these evaluations is, are they faithful? Are they faithful to the mysteries of God that have been entrusted to them? Do they teach it faithfully? Do they not compromise it? Not by our whims or our desires or the standards of the world around us. And for those of us who lead the church, especially those of us who teach in the church, our criterion is singular. Are we being faithful with the mystery of the gospel that has been entrusted to us? That's first. That's foremost. Because there is a day coming... Paul says it's a day of judgment when what is hidden will be exposed and our motives will be made known. That's a really sobering thought, isn't it? That my motives and your motives are going to be made known on that day. But what's fascinating about this is Paul is actually looking forward to that. He says on that day, It's a day of reward for me from his perspective. Because Paul is, above all other things, a faithful servant of Christ and a steward of the things of God. Because he's faithful, he anticipates that day as a day of reward, commendation. It's a good day. How about you? When you think about a day when what's hidden will be exposed, when your motives will be made known, do you look forward to that or do you dread it? Whom do you serve? Are you serving faithfully? That seems to be... a determining factor in the way we think about that day. A faithful servant looks forward to that day. It's a day of commendation, a day of reward. Um, The next verse, Paul says, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos, the other leader of the church there, for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. And the quote there, um, do not go beyond what is written, is kind of cryptic. Uh, It's not exactly clear what Paul's talking about, although he does use similar language when he quotes the Old Testament. He refers to it as what is written. It may very well be his reference point, but the intent of his saying that is very clear. It's to keep them from prideful boasting, uh, perhaps in some other man. See, one of the great dangers of being judgmental is it makes you proud. It puts you in a place of pride when you sit in judgment of someone else. And we are so very prone to being judgmental in so many ways. Uh, it's interesting statistic. Um, I think it's, it originates with uh, the Barna Research Group, but it was written in a book called uh, Unchristian. And uh, 
the, the database is based on people born between 1965 and 2002. And nearly 9 out of 10 of what they call young outsiders, 87% said that the term judgmental accurately describes present-day Christianity. That's our reputation. We're judgmental. And so Paul is not, um, not happy about that when it's used in this way. And so he is about to roll up his sleeves and really go after the church because of this. Verse 7. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Ouch. Okay. Paul is taking them and us to task. He's essentially saying, who do you think you are? And where do you think you got what you have? And this angle slays all of our silly um, vestiges of pride. And they are legion. I remember before I lived in North Carolina, I lived 10 years in Texas. And Texans are proud of being Texan. I mean, crazy proud. They want to be their own nation, for gosh sakes. Um, but I had this friend down there, and it's so funny. He was so proud of being a Texan. And then one time the truth came out, we found out that he was actually born in Oklahoma. <laughs> he was born across. And, and literally, his face fell. He was shamed when that came out. Now, you can be thankful if you were born in Texas, or thankful that you weren't, okay? But proud of being born in Texas? Really proud? proud of where you were born? What did you have to do with that? Okay? Did you like, mom, go across the border. <laughs> Want to be born in Texas? You didn't have anything to do with it. There's no pride, place for pride in that. Um, in the Screwtape Letters, this is a marvelous book written by C.S. Lewis uh, of a, an older demon apprenticing a younger one. And the enemy in these writings is God. And he says, the enemy, who is God, will try to render real in the patient's mind, the person they're trying to tempt, a doctrine which they all profess but find it difficult to bring home to their feelings. The doctrine that they did not create themselves, that their talents were given them, and they might, and that they might as well be proud of the color of their hair as their talents. So you're proud of how you look? Proud of how tall you are? Of the color of your hair? Or your eyes? Where you were born? How smart you are? How talented you are? How skilled you are? Where'd you get that stuff? Who gave it to you? Who put you in the place where you could acquire it? Who gave you the desire, the ability, the raw material? determined where you would be born and when. Truthfully, our gifts should make us humble, not proud. They're gifts after all. So the problem with their judgment of Paul, their judging Paul, is really twofold. Okay? It's not their job. 
He is the servant of another. You ever wander out of your authority at work and start trying to direct somebody not in your department? Doesn't usually go over real well. It's not their job. He's somebody else's servant. They have no business judging. But secondly, it's rooted in pride. In a sense, they are sitting over Paul and his message to see if he measures up to their standards rather than humbly sitting under his message as one faithfully bearing the mysteries of God to them. Um, This is the image that I'm thinking about when I think about this. Uh, If you ever watch tennis, on the sideline of the tennis court, there are two sets of chairs. The elevated one is for the umpire, the judge. And the low ones are for the players. With respect to the preaching of the Word of God, which seat are you in? Do you sit up high and judge it? Was that up to my standards? Was the pastor on today? Was he funny? Did he keep my attention? Or are you under it, being judged by it? See, we are so, um, so critical and so accustomed to critical evaluation, which is often a good thing, when we drag it into this room and subject this act to it, something's wrong with that. There's something weird that we would sit up high and look down on the preaching of the word and judge it. Even to this day, our architecture says something contrary to that. As long as we've been building churches, at least since the Reformation, the place for the preaching of the word has been exalted above us. So, what seat are you in this morning? Which of those? Are you judging the pastor and his message? Or are you sitting under the teaching in humility? And don't get me wrong, there's a sense in which we're supposed to judge. Paul's going to urge the church to judge someone just in the next chapter. Um, The Bereans are notorious for this in in a good sense. In Acts 17, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message, um, the message of the gospel, with great eagerness, and yet they examined it, they judged it every day to see if what Paul said was true with respect to the scriptures. So examination and judging in that sense is good. If your posture is that you're eager to receive the truth from God. So yes, yes, please judge me. And any other teacher at North Wake who stands here and professes to speak for God. Yes, Judge us. Be discerning and see if we've been faithful to what we've been entrusted. By all means, you are to judge us in that sense. But I wonder, do you go beyond that? Do you judge my style? My jokes? Even judging the sacred sweater vest? (laughs) You've gone too far. Okay? Are you in the posture of judging the messenger and the message, or are you bowed down low in your heart to receive the word of God? Which of those seats are you in? 
Are you judging me or are you receiving the word? The Corinthians, as we have heard repeatedly, were a prideful lot. And Paul now takes to mocking them, it seems. He says, already you've got all you want. Already you've become rich. You've become kings. And that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings or begun to reign so that we might be kings and reign with you. For it seems to me, Paul says, that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. Do the Corinthians really think they have arrived? It's entirely possible this is a reflection of their theology, that they really think that the the blessings of the next age are theirs now. But without question, it's a result of their pride. They really think they've arrived. And this is in contrast with the apostles. And Paul uses some interesting expressions that this translation kind of expands on there a little bit. He puts us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. D.A. Carson helpfully explains that in one of his commentaries. He says, probably the imagery here was drawn from the triumphal processions of returning Roman legions from battle. The senior military people would come first, then the more junior ones behind them. The prisoners would be dragged along in descending order of rank. It's kind of like a parade, military parade coming back. Behind them, the prisoners would be dragged along in descending order of rank. Among the defeated foes, the lowest classes and the slaves would bring up the rear, eating everyone else's dust, knowing that they were destined for the arena. There they would die at the hands of gladiators or simply be thrown to the wild beasts for the amusement of the populace. And Paul says, that's where I am. That's where the apostles are. We are, uh, in verse 10, um, we are on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. Paul is establishing this vivid contrast between how the apostles think and live and how the Corinthians think and live, prideful and humble. Self-exalting and self-sacrificing. Now he has established that contrast. He leaves the contrast and he just concentrates um, for their good on the example of the apostles, Paul and the other apostles. He says, to this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. 
And what can we say of this? The great faithfulness of Paul and the apostles to their king and his mysteries, along with their humility before him, is in stark contrast with the Corinthians' pride, and it enables them to suffer greatly and to respond to that suffering with grace. They suffer physically. They don't have the basic necessities of life sometimes. They don't even have enough food and water. At other times, they're homeless. Sometimes they wear rags. They have been beaten brutally, persecuted for the trust that's been given them. They have to work with their own hands. They have to keep a day job. Work on the side, maybe making tents like Paul. They suffer emotionally. They are called fools. They are dishonored. They are cursed and slandered. They are, they are treated like, he says, scum and refuse. The imagery seems to be the stuff you wash off your body in the shower that ends up in the tub. Scum. Refuse. It's what you sweep out of the kitchen, put in the dustpan, throw away. He says, that's where we are in order to be faithful, in order to serve our king. When they're slandered and cursed, they answer kindly with grace. They suffer, when they suffer deprivation in serving Christ, they endure it. They're homeless fools dressed in rags. And you get a sense why that wasn't very impressive to the Corinthians. I mean, wouldn't it be cool if your pastor was famous? You know, if he wrote books and, um, you know, was on TV, spoke at like national conferences. Wouldn't that be cool? That's my pastor over there. This is his book. Signed it for me. Um, you know, some churches derive their status from their pastors. So they want him to drive the nicest car and live in a gated community. Um, I have a car. Actually, my daughter has my car. I had her car until my son's truck went on the fritz, and now he has her car, and I have his truck that usually starts, but not always. It's a 92 Ford Ranger. Um, and I have a house. It's a decent house. No gates, though. I haven't written a book, but the other day I found out I was mentioned in the appendix of somebody else's book. There's a line that uh, said, we, we filled out a survey, and it said, North Wake Church, Larry Trotter, Wake Forest. Um, <laughs> and I probably, I didn't even fill out the survey. Probably Shanna did that years ago. Um, but hey... Your pastor's published. <laughs> that floats your boat, you know. Um, can't, can't be in the business of judging your pastors, your leaders, by what they drive, or where they live, or how famous they are, how entertaining they are. We are to judge them by how faithful they are to the trust of the mysteries of God. It's been given to them. 
Do they preach Christ crucified? Would they be willing to be fools in the eyes of the world in order to be faithful to that message? Are they sacrificing for it? Are they willing to suffer for it? See, today it's interesting. There's a popular teaching in the church, and if you've ever turned on your TV at home this time of week, this time of the day, you've heard it. It goes kind of like this. We are kids of the king. We're princes and princesses. Shouldn't we live like it? We should have the best to represent the king. We should drive the best, wear the best, live in the best. We're princes and princesses. And it's almost the same confusion that's going on in Corinth. What is yet future is now is bled into the now in such a way that it distinguishes or obliterates the idea that now we are to follow a crucified Christ. You know what it says. Take up your cross daily. If that doesn't mean suffer, what could it mean? I have no idea. Take up your cross daily and follow the crucified Christ. Peter says it as clearly as, as could be said in 1 Peter 4. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Future. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer, thief, or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, a Christ follower, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. See, until that day comes... We are to take up our cross and follow the Christ who was crucified. Paul says in verse 14 of our, of our passage, I'm not writing this to shame you, although he's doing a pretty doggone good job, but to warn you as my dear children. Paul loves this church, okay? This messed up church in Corinth, he loves it. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Paul planted the church. He started the church. He's the first pastor. Therefore, he says, I urge you to imitate me. Imitate me, Paul says. In what way? Well, he just showed us in following a crucified Messiah, in a humility that's willing to suffer in order to be faithful for His name, in forsaking the applause of the world for the reward of God, to serve, even though sacrifice and suffering, the one that we belong to. Paul is challenging the church in Corinth. He's challenging the church at North Wake to be fools for Christ. 
to be faithful even if it leads to suffering and loss, to respond with grace to those who might mock us or even oppose us. This isn't something optional for Paul. He's serious about it. And so he decides in the next few verses, he says that this reason, I'm sending to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Um, he's sending Timothy to straighten out the church. How would you like that job? I'm going to send you to straighten out the church in Corinth. You know, thanks, but couldn't I go to Philippi or somewhere else? This is a disaster. So Timothy gets this job. Why does he get the job? He meets the requirement. He's faithful in the Lord. That's it. So he gets the job. And you see um, Paul modeling here. He says, my life matches my teaching. That should be true of your pastors and teachers. Their lives better stack up pretty close to what they teach. That's a legitimate examination. He goes on there and says, Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip? Some of your Bibles say with a rod. Images of a father disciplining his child. Or in love and with a gentle spirit. Paul is warning them. He's sticking with that father imagery. Shall I come and administer the rod? Or gentleness. You want a spanking or you want a hug? You decide. It all depends on where you sit with respect to the teaching of the mysteries of God, the scriptures. Are you over it in that judge's chair? Are you under it in humble submission, faithful no matter what it would cost you? Even clothes, even homes, even health, even reputation. Which seat are you in? Let's pray for a moment. Lord, blessed be your word as it is brought to us. May it be exalted over us, have its full effect upon us. Protect us from our pride that would resist it. Grant us the humility of Christ in submission to it. We ask this in his name. Amen. We have uh, rearranged our order of service today. We have now a block of uh, worship and song that we're going to do. And it accomplishes two things for us. Hopefully it allows us 
an opportunity to reflect further on what God has just said to us. So if in a minute as we stand and worship in song, God's been speaking to you, it's okay for you to stay bowed low and let God deal with you and seek God in prayer. You may want to kneel in your, where, where you are. That would be perfectly appropriate during this time. The other thing it does is it readies us for this table. Uh, the glorious invitation of Christ to remember him and to commune with him at his table. And so, as we ready ourselves for that, let me lead us in just a simple prayer of confession and then we'll rise and worship God together. Let's pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. May Almighty God have mercy on you, forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. Amen. Let's rise worship.